0: So we left off on the bottom of page 25 in Living Islam with Purpose on Maximum number 2, certainty will not be overturned by doubt. So we're in the f- the part of the fifth operation operating principle operate operational principle of understanding Islam now in this paper. And the fifth principle is embracing legal maxims And now we're on the second of those principles Which is the principle of uh, How did he translate it? Certainty will not be overturned by doubt Certainty will not be overturned by doubt (coughs) Bismillah He said this maxim means that knowledge based on valid experience and strong evidence Must not be overturned by weaker considerations So if you recall when we talked about this idea of um, respecting dissent, respecting difference of opinion in in the realm of thought, one of the principles that underlied that was the idea that when we're dealing with text, when we're dealing with Revelation, there are things that we can say with absolute certainty that are not debatable at all. And then there's a large body of things that... (coughs) They're likely to be true, but there's room for some debate on them, either as a result of um, uh, variations in how to interpret the statement or variations in the reliability of the narration. And so that leads to some level of debate uh, that's possible. Now, what that that brings up is that (coughs) for a lot of things we don't know for sure but the level at which we do know is good enough and this is a really really important concept i think that kind of like lies under this is that there's certain things that we know for sure we're just having this conversation in between about like this idea of coming to the certainty of belief in god we believe in that we believe in the certainty of the truth of the quran But when we look at like, you know, the classic example that we've used before Of how much of your head do you have to wipe when you make wudu? Now, there's a lot of difference of opinion on that How much of your head do you have to wipe when you make wudu? Because of variations in interpreting the Arabic language And questions as to the practice of the Prophet ﷺ and so on And so, there's a level of, you know, uh, flexibility there, actually And so Abu Hanifa might come to the position that we can't determine, which was his position that we can't determine solely based on the expression of the Quran, what the minimum requirement of wiping on the head is. And so, because there's a little bit of uh, ambiguity there, then we have to go to the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ to look at his practice, and that will define for us how we should understand the verse. So he can, and that was, and that conclusion that he comes to, is reliable enough that we should practice it and we should follow it while at the same time not being 100% certain okay so b- why I'm why I'm putting emphasis on this is because we kind of are in a period right now with the information overload stuff that everything has doubt on it everything has doubt on it no, no matter what you say there's 17 opinions on it Right and this person yeah but I saw this article and another person but I saw this article, but I saw this article, but I saw this article everyone has seen an article on something related to something right and in the end, that doesn't make that doesn't mean that every conclusion is of the same reliability and yeah, none of them may be reached to the level of certainty, but some of them are stronger than others, and that's good enough because we recognize that we're in dunya you don't know everything in dunya you make your best approximation the Prophet on said uh, uh, what's the first part of it saddidu wa qaribu wa abshiru uh, something basically saddidu wa qaribu is part of the narration saddidu wa qaribu saddidu wa qaribu means like Seek to hit the thing as close as you can. and, and Seek to do it on the right spot. What qaribu means like and to the best approximation that you have. So there's a recognition of like, you do your best with what you know. And you could be wrong. It doesn't have like going to based on deeds No. You know which one it is? You just reminded me though. Unless there's another narration. It could be that there's another narration. You know, I'm not by any means uh, very kno- you know, knowledgeable in hadith. But the narration that we, we had was uh in Yusrun ahadun illa wa or something like that. Something like you know, basically uh, the deen is easy. And no one will make the deen difficult except that it overcomes them. So try your best and come as close as you can and have glad tidings. And seek the help of Allah by something in the morning and something in the evening. This is the hadith. It's a beautiful hadith actually. A lot of beneficial points in it. But the the point that I was getting at is that there's things that we know more and there's things that we know less. They're not all equal. And we recognize that I could maybe, maybe this is going to be wrong in the end. But I think like when we when there's too much information, we start to engage with the world in the wrong way, which is we think if we learn enough, everything can be put in the right place, and everything will be fine and all the decisions will be right, and it's just not true. <laughs> you know, you're gonna learn and you're gonna do your best and it's gonna be wrong, or like you're gonna do everything that you can and someone's gonna die. Yeah, you know, like t- sorry to be really really like really blunt about it, but you're gonna do everything you can and then like a boulder falls from the roof and hits the person that's walking down the street. Or like you do everything you can and someone runs the red light and they're drunk and they hit you. Like there's there's nothing more you can do. Like said they do Like just do your best and but that's the this is the way dunya is. Like it, there's too many variables. There's only so much you can control. So but so the principle here is that Valid experience and strong evidence Is not overturned by weaker considerations This is the principle Valid experience and strong evidence Is not overturned by weaker considerations Certainty will not be overturned by doubt Certainty will not be overturned by doubt So (coughs) Yeah, maybe that could be the case Alright You know, maybe someone has a track record of XYZ And you see something and you're like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, don't, I don't know. I'm going to go with what I know. And what I know is that they're a decent person and so on and so forth. It doesn't mean that you ignore those things per se, but you know, put things in their in their place. Uh, it's in, in, illustrated in the hadith of the Prophet Wasallam, If any one of you has doubts during their prayer and no longer knows whether they have prayed three or four rak'ah, Let let them cast the doubt aside And complete the prayer By adding to what he is certain That he did So this is You're in prayer Like oh wait Am I on Raka'ah 3 or Raka'ah 4 So which one are you sure about And which one are you doubtful about 3 You're sure about 3 You're doubtful about 4 So you go with 3 (coughs) The Hanafi school is a little bit different By the way But (laughs) You know Yeah uh, if it's something that happens to you often then you don't have to go with what you're certain about you can go with what you what you think is more right you don't have to default to the three necessarily if you're like is it three or is it four I think it's four you can go with four if you're someone who that happens to them a lot. anyways uh, there's a whole Hanafi school is like it'll make you crazy you have to study the Hanifi school for 50 years to understand okay. it then you say, oh, maybe it's three, maybe it's four, but you did the last shah- like the shahud, and could you just get up and do the, the fourth one before you do the salam? Yes. You do that? Okay. That's so what you would do. not separate, rak- I mean, rak'ah <coughs> rak- like Right. No, you would... Just do it right after the shahud. As long as, yeah, as soon as you remember, you go to it. As soon as you remember, you go to it generally speaking but uh like even if it's after the salam you can still do it if you haven't done anything else mm. if you haven't like moved from your spot if you haven't talked to someone if a time hasn't passed so on and so forth you can still uh, do that one rakah. Uh, mm. yeah but the the madhaib you know they differ so it's it gets a little bit tricky gets a little bit tricky <coughs> Sorry, I'm just remembering like all these in the Hanafi school on Salat and like when you make mistake you do this and this one you do this and this one you do this if you got that far then you do it this way if you got that far you do it this way if this mm-hmm. and this, it's still valid, it's not valid it's like crazy, the Masa'il the book on uh, I was reading with the Sheikh recently showed me this book it's like this thick only on Salat <laughs> like <laughs> it's Hanafi school, I'm telling you Hmm? And right, a lot of thinking going on. The other thing in in the Hanafi school too is that there's a lot of opinions in the school. So like so and so will say this, and so and so will say this, and so and so will say this, and they'll give you like six people who said different things on one issue, and then they'll give you like this is, but this is the opinion that the fatwa was on, you know. So like everything in its time. If you go to those books in the beginning, you'll never remember anything. You'll end up like me. The beginning, when you study fiqh, you learn your madhab, you learn one opinion in your madhab. This is it. (laughs) Then you go to the next level. Then you go to the next level. Then you go to the next level. Otherwise, you can't remember anything. If you do all the difference of opinion in the beginning, you can't remember anything. You have to go with the certainty first, not the doubt of all the other opinions. You have to know what is the opinion of the madhab. Okay, this is what I know, build off that. The maxim hones the power of reason and breaks the hold of illusions and unfounded speculations. Failure to live by this maxim does a disservice to the human mind and eventually harms it. Ultimately, certainty is not overturned by doubt, embodies the Islamic conviction that truth, as varied as its paths are, is not a function of arbitrary will or subjective perceptions and must be discerned through objective criteria. Uh, something that Dr. Omar has said, and I've asked him something before, one of the things he says is Uh, It's very important that you distinguish That which you have control over Versus that which you don't have control over That's an issue of doubt and certainty, right? Like when it comes to knowing what you have control over This is something that you know you can actually do something about When it's something that's outside of your control You're not sure now So making that distinction is kind of like a practical application of this Certainty is not overturned by doubt Is more about basic proof and the resolution of conflicting claims Than it is about categorical authoritative certainty Such as we discussed under the second operational principle Subhanallah, he brings it up Alhamdulillah Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah Those are the greatest moments in your life One of the maxim's most important applications Is the presumption of continuity The presumption of continuity holds that these that things must be presumed at present to remain in their former states, until the contrary is proven. So this comes from the same principle. Which is w- what is it saying? It's saying that if something is in a particular way, you assume that it hasn't changed from that way until there's an evidence to know otherwise. Okay. So if I leave the office today, and I left a book on the table. I'm going to assume that when I come back tomorrow that book is going to be on the table. Unless I have some reason to think otherwise, I'm going to assume that, right? And that 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 has many many applications. One of the biggest applications of that is in the presumption of innocence. <coughs> That's from Islamic law. The idea of the presumption of innocence, the presumption of innocence is this. That is <coughs> had is that al asl bara'at al-dhimma. The assumption is that a person doesn't have anything against them. And unless you have evidence to prove otherwise, you stay with what was there in the beginning, which is that you don't have anything. right? This is this is f- pure Islamic law taken from Islamic law. Oh, subhanAllah, today is a good day. Like many other legal systems, Islamic law upholds the principle that people are innocent until proven guilty. <laughs> For Muslims, the presumption of innocence is a corollary of certainty is not overturned by doubt. Ashku Another common application of certainty Is not overturned by doubt Is the presumption of permissibility This is another one that comes up a lot right? The presumption of permissibility That what is the default ruling on things Um, Default ruling on things That are not acts of worship Is that they are permissible Ibn Taymiyyah asserts that None of the early authorities of Islamic law Is known to have questioned the validity Of the presumption of permissibility Right uh, there's a presumption of cleanliness, like for example, if i'm coming to pray and I can't openly clearly see something that's dirty on the floor, I assume that it's clean uh, you assume that it's clean you don't have to go to extra m- uh, you assume that it's pure, I should say you know because clean cleanlien- ta- whether or not it's Tahir is different it's not necessarily the same as whether or not it's clean, right. You may not think that it's clean, but it's still permissible for you to pray on it. That's, uh, you know, um, Sometimes uh, we, we mistake those two. <coughs> the presumption of permissibility is crucial for the personal growth and community development of Muslims in the United States. Some Muslims regard Islam as little more than a list of do's and don'ts, and generally the don'ts outnumber the do's. When Islamic identity is behaviorally defined in this fashion, it fosters a psychology permeated with debilitations, inhibitions, and narrow cognitive frames. Prohibition is made Islam's default position, and the religion is given the appearance of permitting very little and prohibiting everything else. What, what a paragraph. What a paragraph. Look at that expression. When Islamic identity is behaviorally defined in this fashion, it fosters a psychology permeated with delibi- debilitations, inhibitions, and narrow cognitive frames. This is very true. You know, I, some of you have probably seen this. Like when you have the narrative of everything is bidah, it messes with your psychology. It becomes very debilitating because everything now. Everything is like, oh, I can't do this, 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 I can't do this this. Next thing you know, you're like really uptight You start getting nervous, you get like really anxious What if I do something wrong, what if I did this And then like, and then they add on top of it that when you make a mistake, you're automatically bad Or when you make a mistake, people start questioning your Islam Like, oh, are they, can you believe it? There's Muslims who go and drink alcohol Yeah, they're Muslims, they're still Muslims They'll make it seem like are they really Muslims anyways? Yes, they're really Muslims. And They're drinking alcohol. Yeah, they're really Muslims. You don't have to make like their sin an issue of their belief. It's <laughs> their action and their belief are two completely different things. Right? So then you end up with all these problems. It's a basic principle of Ahl Sunnah Wal Jama'ah, by the way. It's an issue of aqeedah. That we don't make takfir on people because of sins that they commit. That's that's general principle. Uh, So, but then you mess that up, next thing you know you have a psychology that's just really debilitated. The presumption of permissibility emphasizes that the reverse is true. Islam's real default position is one of general permissibility with an affirmative attitude toward the world. The basic rule of general permissibility does not mean that the clear prohibitions of Islamic law are discarded. In fact, it lays stress on the fact that prohibitions in Islam are grave matters and must not be taken lightly. Because prohibitions are grave matters, they demand cogent proof based on sound knowledge, not on hearsay, misgivings, or inhibitions. (coughs) Ibn Taymiyyah adds in his discussion of the presumption of permissibility, that it is reprehensible for a Muslim to be preoccupied with the minutia of what may or may not be forbidden, or to be obsessed with constantly asking about them. That's just not supposed to be the psychology of the person. Learn... (coughs) And you'll learn the things that you need to learn, and you might find that like something you know was better somewhere else or whatever it might be. But like that's not the psychology that you're trying to build. And this is an issue, you know. Like the role of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is not just a role of instruction; it's really important. The role of the Prophet is a role of instruction, but it's also a role of tarbiyah. So at the same time that he's teaching people what's right and what's wrong, he's building people. So sometimes, like, we have to consider when I'm telling someone something that's right or wrong. Like, is it is it an issue that has to be said? Is it an issue that doesn't has to be said? What is it doing to this person's psychology? What is it doing to their well-being? All of these questions have to be asked, right? Dr. Omar tells a story, and I've mentioned it to you guys before that one of his one of his teachers, and uh, when he was living in Arabia. Um he had a teacher who would come sometimes and when when he would come my understanding is that dr Omar would kind of like stay with him and serve his guests and stuff like that you know like people would come to see the sheikh so he would stay and he would help and like take food to people and you know welcome the people and host them and stuff and uh apparently he would do so in like what seemed in my understanding of what he said like a like kind of like a long shirt and a tamban like a long shirt and the pants like a what do they call that cami uh pants like that kind of thing and he just thought that was like normal you know there's nothing wrong with it so he said like years passed <laughs> literally years passed and one day the sheikh told him he was like you know it might be good to like put another shirt on top of your shirt like a little bit longer shirt <laughs> you know <laughs> because like w- basically in eastern culture he's wearing house clothes he's not wearing clothes that you wear in front of guests and like people and stuff like that he's wearing like pajamas essentially right so hey, the Sheikh told him like you know you might you might like just put another shirt on top and he was like, Shaykh, <laughs> like all this time past, you didn't tell me anything. You know, <laughs> like all these years have passed. T- he's like, We are, you know, it's not that big a deal that we like felt that we needed to say something to you. There are other things we, you know, like there are more important things in, in our relationship with you than whether or not the shirt was right, you yeah. know? And uh, I think that's a really it's a really remarkable story when you think about it. Because what he's saying is like it's not just like w- whether or not what you're telling the person is true. It's like, what am I doing to the person? Uh, what am I doing for them? what where is this taking them? You know, like, am I, am I teaching them in a way that's going to break them? Because that, that would be really bad. You know. What was the wisdom saying at that? Had <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I should ask. Maybe an Umrah. <laughs> probably won't be. <laughs> <laughs> Those <like> are <laughs> the kind of things. Like when you're, with, when you're with someone, you're like, nah, forget it. <laughs> Usually I have, like, like the first time I ever met Dr. Omar, I had this huge list of questions. This is live stream stuff, but this is okay. <laughs> um, Like a huge list of intellectual questions. Because I had read these papers when we were in Egypt and so on and so forth. And, like, like evolution and perennialism and, like, oh, all this stuff I wanted to ask him about. And then and then I met him and I sat down with him and I like took out my notes and I looked at him and I was like, Okay, all oh, this feels kinda dumb now. <laughs> 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 like, is this really what you want to ask him about? Or are there are other things. <laughs> like, how can he know God? Yeah. You know. <coughs> Since presumption of permissibility is the dominant rule, Muslims are not required to prove things th- prove that things are permissible. Only claims of prohibition demand proof. So this was like in 2004 i think 2004-ish when uh muslima started speaking in public back then women didn't speak in public i don't i, th- I don't know if some people in the muslim community even realize that now but like things have changed a lot when she when she first started speaking in public in like 2004 it was a huge scandal People were like write, like literally would write letters and say like take this to your sheikh whoever your sheikh is and she would take the letter and it turns out the letters like this letter in Arabic about how she shouldn't be speaking in public. And they were like what the w- <laughs> what is this? People like come and approach me, you know how do you feel about your wife speaking in public and stuff? I'd be like how do you feel about asking me that question and not <laughs> and, and not walking home today? You know like what are you what are you saying? Like how do you even say that to somebody? You know but this rule was really important. This rule is really important. So i would be like, so why can't she speak? I'm like, why can't she not? It's very simple. Give me, give your evidence. There's nothing. Then the whole conversation is done. Mm. Literally, never. Well, that mudra. Like every, they'd be like, there's no evidence, there's no evidence that every she can't. It's the point. That's the point. But it's just like, anyways. Today, many Muslims take it lightly to declare things forbidden. The opposite was true for the companions and the authoritative voices of Islamic law. Their inhibition to the extent that they may be described as having inhibitions was to pronounce things forbidden unless they were not already clearly known to be so. So their thing was not like, we're going to make everything forbidden. Actually, amongst the early imams, sometimes you have to be careful. Like even in the Hanafi school, it's a principle in the Hanafi school, right? That you have two types of makruh. You have... M- and this is where a lot of people get confused. You have the Makru Tahrimi. Makru Tahrimi is disliked, it's prohibitively disliked. Which means that if you do it, you're sinful. But they don't call it haram. Because the only thing that's called haram in the Hanafi school is something that has a categorically undisputable evidence that that it's haram. You can't debate it. And the same thing with Fard. They won't call something fard unless it's absolutely, you cannot debate that it's obligatory. Otherwise, they call it wajib. Because like, I'm not going to say that. Even some Imam Malik, Imam Ahmed, you have statements from them where it's like, what do you think about such and such? They would say, I don't like it. So they have like seven categories? Yeah. yeah, I Seven or nine. Oh, there's two more. (laughs) Depending on which, who you take it from. But yeah, they have seven. Usually they talk about it as being seven, but really, their sunnah also are levels. Like, uh, like sunnah mu'akkada in the Hanafi school is different than sunnah, because, like, according to everyone else, sunnah mu'akkada in the Hanafi school is something that the Prophet generally did and rarely left it. And so, it's not just as simple as like, if you don't do it, you're not account, you're not sinful, and if you do it, you get reward. They say, if it's sunnah mu'akkara, may Allah forgive us I'm just telling you the knowledge, I'm not saying I practice it But the position, of, this is why hanafis, You find Hanafis are like People from South Asia and stuff are really strict about their sunnah prayers And the Arabs are always like Why are they so strict about their sunnah prayers They have to pray two after Maghrib, they have to pray four before They have to pray two after And it's like they won't do their salat Except with the sunnah, right? Because if you leave the sunnah mu'akkara in the Hanafi school La tastahiq al shafaa This is like really heavy duty, man is that you 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 don't you're not sinful but you don't deserve the intercession of the Prophet. Because this is something that he took very seriously and you're not taking it seriously, so you no longer deserve the intercession. That's what they say in the books. So this is in case you're wondering, like, oh my god, where did that come from? I thought it was just Sunnah and now they're sunnah. look at these backwards daisies, they don't know what they're doing. Of course they know what they're doing. Imam <laughs> They have a they have their position. When you think about it, it's an interesting position. Know? Uh, the Sunnah muakkadah is something that the Prophet send them, very rarely left it So if you're leaving it all the time You're neglecting the way of the Prophet That's what, they're, that's what their reasoning is Of course you know some of us We roll with the Jamhur on this one <laughs> 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 Go with the majority position on this one It's hard man Make all your Sunnahs Then they have all the Nefim too So they have these like different their category. The other schools have it too but Anyways The presumption of permissibility We talked about I wanted to get to this uh, paragraph A religious psychology narrowly molded By list of do's and don'ts Is greatly handicapped Muslims with such an identity struggle Not to feel alien or out of place In surroundings where their list of do's and don'ts Is not shared Okay They not only have problems relating to non-Muslims, ironically, it is often even more difficult for them to interact with other Muslims who do not conform to their way of thinking. In reality, laws, behavioral standards, and even reasonable list of do's and don'ts are part of the Islamic ethos, but they must have their foundation in sound knowledge, core values, and universal principles like those epitomized in the five operational principles. When Islamic identity is based on core values and universal principles within the parameters of acceptable behavior, it is empowered to function with self-confidence anywhere and with anyone. It ceases to be psychologically vulnerable in diversity and becomes receptive to the broadest cognitive frames. That is, again, a really remarkable paragraph. Some of, some of the things in this paper, they, like, they deserve meditative practices. Like You sit with the paragraph and just think about the paragraph for half an hour. Like, let me just think about it. like What is he saying here And the consequence of what he's saying so If you have you, you understand the universal principles And you understand the core values And you build your understanding around those things It enables the person to not be psychologically vulnerable In diversity They can deal with different situations You see this a lot right Like This is one of the biggest problems I think Sometimes of so called practicing Muslims Is they're completely dysfunctional like the, the the do's and the don'ts and the lists and everything else became so overbearing that they can't do anything in life, and you can't rely on them for anything. They're completely dysfunctional, completely like socially awkward. They can't do anything, and that's why. Like when we were studying, one of my overarching core principles of understanding Islam was that the prophets on Allah, who functioned as a normal, respectable, honorable. Functional human being in his society People respected him, people loved him, people wanted to be around him That's the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ So like any religious teaching that's making me dysfunctional That wasn't the way of the Prophet Wasallam. So like yeah, it, there may be some truth to like some angle of the way that the person is saying the thing or something But that's not the way the Prophet was, that's not the way the companions were The companions are very functional people you could rely on them to get things done. They, they they know how to talk to people. They know how to deal with situations. They know how to handle conflict. They know like, you know, I mean, look at some of the things they did. It's really amazing. It wasn't like Omar ibn Khattab comes to the door to take shahada from the prophets Sallallahu Alaihi them. They don't know he's coming for shahada and he has the sword on his on his belt. And they come. He comes and knocks on the door, and they say, "Ya Rasulullah, Omar's at the door and he has a sword with him." You know. <laughs> And Hamza's not like, okay, what are the do's and don'ts of how do I interact <laughs> with this situation? Like, Sayyidina Hamza's like, open the door. If he wants good, he'll get good. And if he wants bad, I'll cut his head off right now. Like that was, that was one of the narrations of what Sayyidina Hamza said. Like he wasn't, he's was like, we'll just deal with the situation. Because <laughs> you know? like, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is here and we're here and Omar's here and Omar's not any more of a man than I am and like we'll handle it whatever we need to do. Like they were functional human beings. They, they come into the house They deal with the situations Omar. Um, right before that The situation that happens with Omar Where he comes in And he finds his sister And her husband reading And he starts like beating This says he gets an am- The narration says Basically is an amount For jujitsu terms Like he's on He's on the top position and he's beating on His brother-in-law And his sister comes And tries to help And like they handle the situation Even after all that When he calms down They have ezzah too She's like No you can't touch it You have to go clean yourself He's like Let me see He's like No you can't touch it Sorry Go wash up I mean, like, these people were interesting people. They weren't like, oh, my God, did I let him, like, should I have said that, should I have not said that, so on and so on. At some point, you have to live. So, these, you know, this, what is the psychology that's being developed by the whole thing? Issues such as recognizing the Constitution, voting, or accepting women as community leaders, speakers, and active participants in the mosque and other public venues are controversial in some communities. These matters are probably not problematic for most Muslims in America, but there are those who regard them as questionable or even forbidden. The presumption of permissibility makes it clear that endorsement of matters such as these requires no proof of permissibility. The burden of producing definitive scholarly proof always falls exclusively on the shoulders of those who question their permissibility. Embracing the American constitutional legacy, empowering women, removing the remnants of patriarchy, however, are not actually questions of permissibility. Their social obligations, societal obligations of the highest order. It'll be interesting to see what his uh, footnote is on that one. Forty-two. Forty-two. Hold on. I am using patriarchy in the sense defined by Esma Barlas as a politics of sexual differentiation that privileges males by transforming biological sex into politicized gender, which prioritizes male while making the women different, unequal, less than, or other. Interesting. <coughs> I mean, Dr. Omar is not. He doesn't use words without thinking them through a lot. Uh, I don't even know what page we're on. Where's <laughs> 42? The one with patriarchy? Maximum like 5. Like Maximum 4. Like Maximum... Three, where are we? None of you are following along. Which page is it? Or we have different ones. Yeah, you have a different one. Okay, they're high of the high order because we only have one page before the end of this maxim, so we're just going to finish and then inshallah be okay. The question of gender and patriarchy raises broader concerns. Islamic educational institutions in the US and elsewhere must create the mechanisms needed for producing Muslim women who are fully qualified Islamic scholars. A good route to doing that would be to pay them. Just a side note, you know. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> like people literally said to us when we first came back from studying like w- we'll, we'll, to me we'll give you a job because we know like if we give you a job then we'll, we'll benefit from your wife too right because like she'll be in the community and so on and so forth and like, but we're not going to pay you of course we'll just pay you and you'll never get a raise ever forget about it once you're in imam work there's no, like, negotiating things every year and inflation and all this kind of stuff. It's just like, here's your salary. 20 years later, here's your salary. The question of gender and patriarchy... Okay, go on. Gender-related questions, including those mentioned above, should not be delegated exclusively to male authority. Authority. More significantly, no question should be delegated to men alone. Muslim women must have opportunities to equal to their male counterparts in all concerns. The disempowerment of Muslim women is a major reason for the retrogression of many Muslim societies. Degradation of the status of women has the same debilitating effect on Western Muslim communities that countenance it, and it must be corrected. Islam has a rich legacy of accomplished and actively engaged women. Great Muslim women excelled as political and military leaders, poets, scholars, philanthropists, spiritual guides, and in other capacities. Renewal of their legacy is essential for the future of Muslim communities everywhere. An excellent example of empowered and empowering Muslim women is the elegant 12th century scholar Fatima bint Muhammad al Pandi of Syria. Uh, her father was a preeminent Hanafi jurist And took active part in his daughter's education Fatima became widely renowned for her own knowledge She mastered Hanafi jurisprudence And the sciences of hadith Her legal judgments and transmissions of hadith Were held in the highest regard Fatima also excelled as a teacher Of the various Islamic sciences She instructed men as well as women And students traveled to Syria To learn from her and receive their scholarly credentials She, Her mahr w- Or like the gift that her husband Gave to to her father is one of the major works in the Hanafi school because her father had written a book called al Fuqaha Abu Layth al-Samarqandi and his student was Imam al-Kasani who wrote Bada'i al sanaya it's in there, it's 10 volumes he wrote it and he gifted it to the father-in-law when he married his daughter when he married uh, Fatima Fatima al-Samarqandi was a personal counselor to Nuruddin Zengi. Mm? Nur ad-Din is counted among the most significant rulers in Islamic history. He is remembered primarily for preparing the ground for the success of his vassal, Salah ad-Din, a few years after his death. He's the one who laid the foundations for Salah ad-Din. She was a counselor to him. Fatima was renowned, renowned for her beauty and was widely regarded as the most beautiful woman of her time. Kings and princes unsuccessfully sought her hand in marriage. She chose instead to marry one of her father's students, and Cassani, who is ranked today among the most brilliant Hanafi jurist. Fatima chose him because of a commentary he wrote on one of her father's principal legal works, and Cassani's commentary. The Most Marvelous of Beneficial Things, Bada'ya Constituted his marriage gift and it is one of the classics of Islamic jurisprudence Few, if any, works in the Hanafi school show greater attention to the rationales and ultimate purposes of the law Although Al-Kasani ranks among the most competent of jurists, it was Fatima who corrected and ed- edited his legal opinions His esteem for her was so great that he would not sign the legal opinions he issued until she signed them first رضي الله عنهما أجمعين صلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم.